Welcome to Protect What's Yours, a podcast from Marcelino and Tyson, providing timely insight into legal issues for your personal and professional needs. Join us for in-depth discussions inside our practice areas of family law, business and employment, ERISA disability, civil litigation, bankruptcy, and more. At Marcelino and Tyson, we're focused on protecting the interests of our clients and providing the outcomes they deserve. It's time to take the fear and uncertainty out of your legal situation. Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Becker, and I'm the business development manager here at Marcelino and Tyson. And I wanted to welcome you to our podcast, Protect What's Yours. Today, I'm sitting here with two of our attorneys, Matt Marcelino and Brian Tyson, and we're going to take a deep dive into non-compete agreements in a business, but from both the employer and the employee perspective. For the purpose of this podcast, we're going to have attorney Matt Marcelino discuss non-compete from the employer side, and attorney Brian Tyson will provide insight from the employee's perspective. Brian, first, can you tell me a little bit about Marcelino and Tyson's non-competition and trade secret practice? No, because we signed an NDA and confidentiality, so no comment. <laughs> I'm not even Brian Tyson. Uh, that's a great way to start yeah. off. Isn't it? Our non-competition and trade secret practice has really encompassed everything. And Matt's joking, and we're going to go into several of the different types, but we have worked with both employers and employees, as you were saying, to start off with through various types of non-competition agreements. And there are several different types. We've worked with companies regarding trade secrets. And you'll see issues come up with respect to both sides of the aisle. And that's why we did want to talk about this. And even from the employee's perspective, you'll see it within the context of professionals such as doctors or dentists, or we've worked with architects or engineers, a lot of sales professionals, because that often comes up with respect to leaving a company and potentially taking customers. And one other aspect of that that we should mention. We're going to kind of use the terms employee and employer today with Matt doing the employer side and me doing the employee side. But non-competition agreements come up in a much broader sense. In other words, you'll often see them in like a franchise or franchisee situation. So it's not necessarily an employer-employee strict classification. You'll also see them sometimes come up with respect to an independent contractor Even two businesses that are working together may have some type of agreement with respect to information that they're sharing or customers that they may have a joint venture with, but they may want an agreement from the get-go about what happens when this relationship dissolves or ends. And so it's a little bit broader context than that. And it's something that we've had the chance to work on in that regard as well. So we often hear the term non-compete, but as I understand, there's actually several types of non-competes. Can you briefly describe those and why an employer might use one over the other? When people call, more often than not, especially like companies or employers, right, they always refer to it as a non-compete agreement. But what they're really referencing is certain provisions within a contract, typically an employment contract, where we're talking about restrictive covenants. And restrictive covenants can have a series of different provisions internally, right? One of which would be the non-competition agreement. So non-compete is just the term that everybody refers to this agreement, but they're really referring to restricted covenants in general. So most of the time you've got non-compete, you've got non-solicitation, non-interference. You've also got confidentiality, possibly some NDAs, non-disclosure agreements that might be present in an employment contract. But if the question is describing each of those, non-compete is essentially this, that dear employee, Based upon your contract, you know, we're paying you X amount of dollars. There's consideration and so forth. In, in North Carolina, you have to have consideration for there to be a non-compete within the agreement. The presence of a job doesn't really get you there. 
So like if non-compete says, you know, once your employment is ends, whether you quit or we fire you, you can't compete against the company for a period of time and within a certain territory or range. So if it's two years, it might be like Mecklenburg County and the surrounding counties. Or maybe if the time period is shorter at like six months, it could be, you know, the entire Southeast region or something to that effect. It really depends upon the employer, what the person's doing, what their job is, and how specific or Nietzsche it could be, because that could also depend upon how large the territory is and the time period that might be around it. But the non-compete component is something that must be obviously in writing. The employee's got to understand it, they got to receive consideration for it and so forth. But the non-solicitation would be the one that would follow that. There's a lot more about a non-compete. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that analysis, and I think we'll get into it later. But non-solicitation is, I've always interpreted as, as meaning one of two things, or possibly both, which is, so again, I'm an employee. Brian, you're the employee. Today, uh, you've terminated your employment. We're not going to say who, whether you got fired or you quit, but your employment's been terminated, right? So you have a non-solicitation. So what that could mean in your employment contract could be one of two things, right? You promise, now that you're no longer an employee, not to solicit current employees of the company, so the other people you used to work with, to leave my company to go with you somewhere else, right? So there's not solicitation of office personnel, employees, and so forth. That's one agreement that might be in place. The other one, not solicitation, could also be with regard to clients or contracts that you have. And I'll get into the non-interference of the contracts in a moment, but non-solicitation could also be, I'm, I'm going to leave clients alone. But sometimes that's also wrapped up into the non-interference of a contract. That's where it kind of gets, you can, I, I always double down on it. So within the non-solicitation regarding clients of the company or customers, potential, all that sort of stuff, contacts, et cetera, I might put that in the non-solicitation provision and also kind of double down on it in the non-interference. But with the non-solicitation, you also typically have a time period, not a territory typically, but you can. Remember, a contract is whatever you want it to be, right? So if you wanted to put in a range, meaning a territory within the non-solicitation, you can, but most of the time we'll just see it as a period of time. So for a period of two years after the termination of your employment, you shall not solicit employees of the company or former employees of the company who are employed within 12 months prior to your termination date, et cetera. And then you can put in the same with regard to customers or contacts or clients of the business, but you've got that time period of roughly two years, right? Or even a year, six months, whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. The non-interference of contracts, that can be everything that the company is in contract with, right? So you could even make that as don't mess with our employees' contracts, but it's sometimes, most of the time, typically related to clients. So if I sell widgets and I've got a bunch of people that buy widgets from me and they're customers and I have contracts with my customers and you leave, one, you're not supposed to compete against me, right? But even if you're not competing, you can't go out there and intentionally mess with the contracts that I have with my clients, my customers. So you can't say, you should leave Matt, Matt's widget company, and go to Jim's widget company, which happens to be your cousin or something like that. So you can't knowingly interfere with those sort of contracts that currently exist. And you can go a step farther and even say potential clients, you know, people that you may have had interactions with for the 12 months prior to your termination date. They may not be a client today, but you built that relationship while you were employed with the company. So therefore, you shouldn't go out and, and attempt to kind of solicit that aspect. But that's, that's where you get into that gray area of the non-solicitation component, right? So that's why I double down on the provision typically when I draft them, just to make sure that they're both there. It's not a client yet, but there's a contact that might be part of the non-solicitation provision. If you put them in both, I feel like it's a good way to cover the bases from the employer's perspective. 
There's also confidentiality and then or a non-disclosure agreement, and, and they can be one and the same. But confidentiality is, you know, Matt's widget company. We've worked hard over the years. We've really got one heck of a widget. I mean, we got, we got the best widget you're going to find. But how we got there is really important because it's a lot of hard work. It's, you know, potential measurements and algorithms and marketing and branding and what's the secret sauce and all that sort of jazz. You know, think about like Coca-Cola's product or Pepsi's, you know, they've got some type of formula that they put into this can and they want to protect that, you know, something they may not patent, right? Like a lot of these guys don't patent it because then you have to disclose what's in there. So confidentiality will come in and say like, while you're an employee, Brian, of Matt's widget company, you're going to learn a lot of really important stuff that is important for the company's success to continue to succeed and thrive. And when you leave, you can't disclose any of that, right? What my algorithm is, how I build my widgets, whatever it might be, that's all top secret. And you can't disclose it forever. It's not a two-year thing, you know, and after two years, you get to run your mouth and so forth. It's, it doesn't work that way. It's forever and ever. Because these are things that are being protected because you got to remember from the employer side, it's a company typically employs people. And the idea, especially within law, you know, when we're trying to get involved to protect companies because they employ individuals. So if you leave and you destroy the confidentiality and you take my secret sauce or divulge Pepsi's formula and create your own company or just tell everyone how to do it, then Pepsi's out, right? And people are going to start replicating the same thing. And then Pepsi's not going to maybe have employees. So it's, it's all about protecting the interests of the company with regard to the confidentiality. Now, things that are in public knowledge, if I have marketing materials that discloses like my, let's say that Matt's widgets, I disclose the pricing of it and, or something that's just general. If those things are disclosed to the public, those things aren't going to be confidential, right? Something that, that's easily ascertainable or otherwise just made that I disclose on my own. But it's just things on the inside, those things that you lock in those private folders within your server that says, here's how we get to the Matt's widget. And those are the things you want to protect. And that's always going to be in an employment contract or these restrictive covenants that we're talking about. Sometimes you may use all of these. Sometimes you may only use one. Sometimes you may use three, right? But it's rare not to see confidentiality in an employment contract. Sometimes, like when you were referring to independent contractors, sometimes it's tough to get an independent contractor to agree to a non-compete, right? Because they're an independent contractor. That's what they do. But confidentiality is something that you're most certainly going to always see in an employment contract. So that's just a real quick explanation of those. And, you know, you can make them. And sometimes I've seen confidentiality provisions that are two pages long. They can get into a lot of detail. Yeah, they um, can be as, as simple or as complicated mm-hmm. as you want them to be, depending yep. on the situation. Yep, yep, yep. So, Brian, can you explain from the employee perspective, what are some of the issues that may arise when an employee is asked to sign an employment agreement that contains non-competition clauses? Yes. So taking what Matt has just talked about, you know, if I'm an employee or I'm I'm counseling an employee, there's a lot of different things you're going to want to look at. And I guess the overarching thing that I see that I would tell people think, really think twice about is think about this from the beginning, not from the end. In other words, don't think, okay, well, great. I'm just going to sign this agreement. Matt mentioned they're going to be in an employment agreement or an independent contractor agreement may have a confidentiality clause in there. But really think about what happens if that actually gets triggered. Because I see a lot of people sign away and then two years later, they end up getting terminated or the contract or the agreement ends, the working relationship ends. And then the question is, they're saying, oh, wait, is this enforceable? What does this mean? I can't work in the state of North Carolina for the next two years. Well, how how am I going to do that? I've got a mortgage. I've got a family. What am I supposed to do? 
I would really say that, you know, whichever side you're on, think about this from the get-go before you ever sign the agreement. I think that's one of the most important things you need to consider and really look at it from how important is this job or this relationship or this business or whatever it is. If you're a franchisee entering in with a franchisor, do I want to be a part of this franchise? Because you may want to get in and look at this. And if everything looks enforceable, but you're not going to be able to work for two years down the road, that may mean you need to think about, hey, I I need to go back and negotiate some severance. Mm. In other words, if I'm not going to work, I need to get paid severance. Or if I'm a franchisee and you're telling me that, okay, you terminate my franchise agreement here and now I can't open a pizza joint in the state of North Carolina, what am I going to do at that point? Am I ready to move into barbecue or am I ready to go you know, do marketing for a company or something else? But you may need to go back and really think about negotiating the agreement so you know what you can do next to in your business life and your personal life. And I guess then another thing I would say is make sure that you understand what you're not able to do. Like Matt was just talking about, there's, there's a lot of labels that people throw at these, but you really have to kind of look at this specific language and find out what are they stopping me from doing? You know, if you're a salesperson, the non-solicit may be a huge issue. You may not care about the non-compete as much, but the non-solicit may be huge because you may have clients that you took with you to this new company to, to bring them in. And then you may be forbidden from taking them if you leave. And so again, a lot of times you might want to go back and, and renegotiate that, make sure that there's an agreement as to what you can do and what you can't do. Make sure you understand those restrictions. I think people don't consider that enough. And at times they really should potentially even walk away from a deal or at least threaten to walk away yeah. from a deal because there is just it's not worth tying yourself up for that period <clears throat> of time. But certainly people, they're aware of it, but they don't really think through the, how it's going to possibly impact them down the road. Most certainly. But in two quick things, one, like with the non-solicit of Matt's widgets, companies, customers, right? So Brian showed up and he brought with him a list of customers, like, cause he used to sell widgets at some other place or whatever. And it's not abnormal for the employer to do this anyways, or it shouldn't be the employer, the company shouldn't be shocked to see this, right? Which is Brian shows up with a list of clients. Hey, these are my folks. I'm showing up with them. If this doesn't work out between the two of us, I'm leaving with these guys. And you want to put that in the contract. And most yes. companies aren't going to have an issue with that, right? It's all about what you may have, unless I'm paying for that, right? But most of the time, it's going to be like, you know, those clients or those customers that we create after you've begun your employment, right? Based Because we're the ones that provide the marketing. We're the ones that give you the credit card and et cetera. So those are the company's clients. But sure. there are times like if you show up with a list of clients and you negotiate the ability to walk away with them, that's great. But sometimes the company's going to say, no, we're going to pay you a premium right? And we're going to essentially buy your list. And that could be very delineated in the contract and say, that's great. You have 25 widget buying folks, but just so you know, when you leave, those are ours. Cause we're going to either two things, either I'm going to pay you for it now. And you're going to say deal or <laughs> the contract's just going to simply say any customer of the, of the company is the company's customer. And so when you leave, because you didn't negotiate those terms in, when you leave those clients remain essentially an asset of the company. And right. therefore you can't solicit the people that you may have grown up with. But the non-compete, the other thing that I left out is understand that the non-compete, and this is from the employer side too, because a lot of this, the employer needs to understand because if you draft a document that's not enforceable, then what a waste of time, right? Sure. So you've got the non-compete, you know, this, the, what's called the janitorial rule, right? It essentially says you can't go to a competitor and then take on the same role that's substantially similar to what you're doing for me. So if you went to a competitor, but you did something totally different, right? That doesn't fall within the non-compete most of the time. 
unless there's some reason for you to draft it otherwise. So what that means and why they refer to as the janitorial rules, you can't preclude somebody from being able to work anywhere anywhere, doing anything. and doing anything because right. that, that's ridiculous. But if you do go to a competitor, there will be the question of, well, what are you doing there? If you're doing the same thing you're doing for me or something that's very substantially similar to what you're doing for me, then no, you can't do that because the non-compete controls, right? But if you go there and you're doing something different for the company, you may get a pass on that. It may be an exception, such as if if you were a salesman at Matt's widget company, and then you went to a competitor, but now you're the COO. So you're no longer on the sales aspect of it. You're, you're in operations or something else. That could probably be excluded from the non-compete. But then you, you still have the non-solicitation of customers and all that other sort of stuff that's in place, confidentiality, et cetera. But you might be able to go to the competitor and do something, but it's got to be something different than what you're doing for your former employer, right? Right. Yeah. And from the employee's perspective, that's you want to know. That's the biggest thing is just yeah. making sure you know, because as you pointed out, if I was CFO and then I can go be CEO, great. That might not matter that much to me. On the other hand, you know, again, to go back, if, I, if I'm selling widgets and I've been in the widget industry for 30 years and now I can't work in the widget industry for two years, that's a problem. Mm. You know, and so again, you may want to go back as you were talking about negotiating from the get-go. You may want to go back and say, great, I'll sit out for three months. I'm not sitting out for two years, but right. I'll sit out for three months. I'll agree to stay away from X, Y, and Z customers of yours. So make sure you, again, start with the end in mind. And I know a lot of people, you know, we talk about, you don't want to plan for failure. You do. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly what you want to plan for is this relationship is not going to work out. What do we all do then? And then what does that mean for me as an individual from the employee perspective or the franchisee or whatever it may be? I think that for us lawyers, like going to the end is always where we start, right? Like it's just ingrained in us or we're just taught that way, right? Like if you get a, Superior court case, the first thing you try to do is figure out what the claims are that are present. And then I always go to the jury instructions. Right. And I try to figure out, well, what does the jury instruction say I'm supposed to prove in my case? And I'd be thinking about that now rather than on the front end, then I get in front of a jury and I don't have anything to present because I've done it all incorrectly. Don't just look at these contracts as how much money am I going to get paid and when? Is, you know, what, what's going to happen to me when I'm no longer here? You know, heaven forbid I, I don't retire at this place, right? And then think about how this can impact you moving forward. Because to your point, like, well, what do you mean I can't take this job? I have a mortgage here. I have a house. My kids are in school. What do you mean I can't do anything in the next two years? Like, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And that's when people try to renegotiate. And then it gets a little messy. As you said, that can get messy, expensive, and expensive. Un- uncertainty. And mm-hmm. neither from, you know, if I'm an executive or I'm a doctor, I don't like uncertainty. I want to know exactly what's going to happen. You know, I have a very valuable career and I want to make sure that I can continue to do that and maximize that value. From the employer's perspective, I would assume it's the same. You don't want uncertainty. I want to know whether I can lock you down or not. Right. So yeah, you want to work these things out ahead of time. Yeah, because if I'm going to file a temporary restraining order on you and then try to convert it to a preliminary injunction, right? It's going to be based off the contract that I drafted that you signed. And I'm going to know what I'm going to be able to do and I'm going to feel very confident that I can roll into court and say, Brian's selling widgets at a competitor. I need him to stop. And in all likelihood, the judge is going to sign that. And now you've got to stop. And then, you know, what we haven't really discussed is what's your new employer going to do with all this? Now you're impacting their business because you can't actually do the job they hired you to do. From the employer side, when I draft, if we're talking about employment agreements, I put in my contracts on behalf of the company, which is because the employee signs it, right? It's their contract. And I have a, there's a provision that says, I, as the employee, am not under any other restrictive covenants from my former employers or any other former employers that would impact my ability to perform this job you're hiring me for, right? Because sometimes what you'll see is like, you know, I may file the TRO against you, but I may also include your new company. 
And then the new company is going to say, well, I didn't know or whatever it may be. And if I'm in the inverse of that, so if, if I hired you and then your former employer sued you and me to prevent you from doing your job selling widgets, I want to say like, I had no clue. And here's the employment contract that's obviously going to be an exhibit. And it says, Brian says, none of this existed. So at least it kind of protects the company from that sort of third-party liability, possibly on any type of damages that you'd be seeking, the former employer would be seeking. Yeah. And from the employee's perspective, you would obviously want to have a good idea of maybe this isn't enforceable. And if it's not, I might feel good about going to that new employer. And the new employer, I mean, we've dealt with companies where they want to know, I really need to hire this person to come in. They have something valuable that our company needs, but they have a contract out there. Is that enforceable? If it is, what does that mean for me, the employer? Am I liable for something? And so we always have to go through that and talk with them about that. And there can be some additional liability related to that with respect even beyond the contractual right. type of provisions. And I think, I think we're going to touch on those in just a little bit. There really is a 360 view to this from everybody's different perspective. Yeah. Let's say you don't have a contract with an employee for a non-competition clause. Are there other protections an employer may be able to utilize if there is unfair competition <clears throat> or trade secret theft or mass hiring away of employees that can cripple a business? It's a lot more difficult at that point in time, for sure. Employers should really always be having their employees sign an employment contract that at least has some of these restrictive covenants in it. I mean, for sure, it just makes it so much easier. There's the idea that we refer to, which is non-interference with a contract, right? Where you go in and you, you mess with your former employer's customers and you try to get them to leave their contract or their relationship with Matt's widget company and go to the new company. But that's in the contract. There is something called tortious interference with a contract, which is a tort claim. And you can sue Brian and or your employer, your new employer. But what the allegation would be is one that you're knowingly interfering with a contract and trying to get that person to not comply with the terms of the contract and move on. But there's a lot of interesting case law on tortious interference of the contract. So Soliciting them to leave, again, remember there's no employment contract, so the word solicitation is, is a little misleading here, but asking the supplier of Matt's widget company to leave and go to your place is that tortious interference with a contract. You have to knowingly be aware that there's a contract and intentionally trying to get that person to not follow the obligations of the contract, right? void the contract, and otherwise not perform. So it's tough, but that's something you would have absolutely go to, right? whether it be a supplier or a former customer or a current customer in this circumstance. Uh, there's unfair and deceptive trade practices that's typically under Statute 75. Those are very difficult to prove. That's where you're essentially saying that somebody's doing and they're acting in the course and scope within commerce and they're infecting commerce. And so it has to be a business sort of relationship. And the statute and the case law is really clear as to what is and what is not. And it has to be almost malicious. You know what I mean? It's got to be, it's got to rise to the level of very knowingly being done. Not right. just, because think of it this way, you leave, you're no longer at Matt's widget company. And then these people reach out to you. You don't directly reach out to them and try to get them not to perform under their contract or not to stay with me. They reach out to you. Would that be considered unfair and deceptive trade practice? Probably not. Would that be considered tortious interference with a contract? Again, probably not. It's all more about what you know and what you do. And if you're not initiating this sort of communications or actions, it'd be hard to get you on both of those. Conversion, that is a claim that's where you take somebody else's property. Right? So that, that could be potentially your formulas for widgets, maybe even. It is. Or, or my laptop that I took with me because I have stuff on there regarding the contact list that you have. Right. 
But essentially what the claim would be for conversion is that it's got to be a tangible thing, right? So it's the contract. It may not be the individual's names on the contract, right? So you're actually taking someone's personal property or business property. But we're talking more like conversion would be like if you took all of the servers out of my office and the computers and you took them over and started your own digs, you've taken my stuff and converted it to to essentially yours and likely selling it, right? And, And then getting cash proceeds. But taking sort of this confidentiality, the trade secrets, all that sort of stuff, you could absolutely go for a conversion on that, but it'll depend upon the form of that information as to whether or not it'd be an, an actual legitimate conversion claim. Then you've got some federal stuff. You've got the Defend Trade Secrets Act. That's, again, that's, pretty, that's more itemized. That's more of your area. I know that you know a lot more about the, the, the federal component on that. And then there's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and that's where somebody goes in and takes a flash drive and jams it into the computer and takes your information, right? So that comes up a lot. Honestly, I feel like most employees are doing that in some form or fashion, possibly when they're leaving their employer, right? Because again, they've worked really hard, 30 years in the widget industry. You have a lot of contacts and information you've put together as well. And there's a sense that it's yours, but from the company's perspective, it's ours, right? Based on hopefully a contract. But if there's no contract, like in this situation, we're just simply saying you're taking information that belongs to the company, contract or no contract. For me, these claims are a toss-up. It really depends upon the circumstances of the case as to whether these are truly viable options, but they are there. You know, I wouldn't be afraid to use them if, it was, if there was an argument to be had. I would much prefer a contract. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. As you mentioned, you know, I do a lot of work in federal court. So the Defend Trade Secrets Act was recently passed, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Those can get you a federal forum, in other words, get you into federal court and provide some remedy. So we have had people come in and are like, well, I kept meaning to do this, or we might be a startup. And you know, we just don't have the money to do that. But yet, all of a sudden, two years down the road, things are going well. We're starting to think about this. And all of a sudden, somebody, as you said, jams a flash drive in there and just walked away with everything we've been working on for two years. What can I do? There are other things that can be done. There are some additional arrows in the quiver that an employer could use to try to make sure they're protecting that even beyond the contractual though. And then from the employee's perspective, if you do end up in one of these litigation fights, you know, one of the things that you always want to think about is, is there potentially a counterclaim? In other words, a claim against your employer. If they're going to start throwing swords at you, you're going to want to think about doing the same thing back. So were you paid everything that you were entitled to if you have an employment agreement? Did the employer breach some other contract with you? Are they tortiously interfering? Matt talked about the situation where you've got a third party who's actually, who hires me. If Matt comes in and tries to blow up my relationship with that new employer, I may be able to counterclaim for tortious interference against Matt's widgets. So those are things that from the employee's perspective, you want to, these are business torts, I guess is how we would kind of label all these. But those are things that you're going to want to think about because they can help you defend yourself and try to get out of whatever the business relationship you were in and move on to your next one with the least amount of damage. So I'd like both of you to address this in turn. We've seen the economy change dramatically over the past quarter century to become more service-oriented and more technology-oriented. We've seen certain changes over the past year, even with COVID, as to how businesses operate. What effect might that have on an employer's use of non-competition and similar agreements? And for Brian, how does that change from an employee side? Obviously, the U.S. economy has become much more service-oriented. In other words, we're not, you know, we use the example of, of widgets, but we're a little bit less of a manufacturing and more of a service industry. And I think that really hones in on what Matt was talking about, about the customer relationships. We are much more a technology-driven economy now. 
know, the real value is the idea. In other words, Microsoft came up with the technology to run computers. Facebook came up with the technology to put people together. A lot of the fintech that we're seeing in the banking industry, it's really driven by that knowledge-based economy and then providing that out to everyone. And so I think you're actually going to see even more regulation of this. You're going to see more battles over this because that is where the value is, is who has that knowledge? And then can I keep that? Can I stop you from taking that somewhere else? Or am I able to take that knowledge or take that, that experience and then provide it to someone else? And they can come up with the brand new product that's going to really hit the market and make a lot of money. I will throw in one thing that I've seen recently, and I don't know if you've been doing this with respect to kind of some of the stuff you've been working on, but I've even seen that within the, and this is probably a little bit more of an intellectual property type of component, but you'll see in a lot of these contracts now, it says, if you come up with some great idea while you're working for me, that's mine as the employer and it's not yours. So from the employee's perspective, again, I would want to make sure that you go through that and think about what are you doing for these folks? How long are you going to be doing it? If you do come up with something, what do we do at that point? How do you think through that? Because again, it really is a knowledge base and idea type of economy. And if you are giving that up to the employer and they're going to get to derive value of it, you just lost out on potentially millions, if not billions of dollars. That's in a lot of contracts, right? Because from the employer standpoint of the company, I hired you to perform a job. And whether you're doing your job at the office or at home, especially now, right, with COVID, it's any ideas you come up with that are you know, somewhat related to your company, to the company or to your employment is, is mine. Yeah, you, you that see, gets to be a battle because I'm going to say, I went home and I, I've been in the widget industry for 30 years and, and I usually type on my laptop that you gave me and I save a lot of stuff on there. Everybody at the company does. So I save the stuff on there, but I came up with that at 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't working on your thing. That was mine. Yeah. So we've seen that happen a lot. Yeah. That's going to be, I don't know, I feel pretty optimistic from the employer side on that. Like, especially now, right? Because most people, a lot of people work in remote, but even before then, my opinion wouldn't change. You know, if your job was a widget developer and at home you came up with this new idea on a different type of widget, well, I hired you to do that. That's going to be mine. Plus you already said you use my computer to do it and you put the information into my computer. And, but you see that a lot. And that is a big deal because when people try to leave, they're not thinking through the restrictive covenants. Can I compete? Can I solicit? What can't I do? What can I do, right? But they don't think about the idea behind what they may have developed and all that information. Does that fall within the confidentiality provision? Probably. The employer owns the property of sort, sort of argument, right? That property is the idea. And the kind of employer, the company's going to own that thing. So you have to think like if you're leaving to start your own digs because you came up with something that you thought was unique and you're taking some type of information that you developed on your own, that's going to be tough. And you need to think that through, especially if you're in a real niche sort of area, right? When you're talking about more of like a technology sort of idea right now, I think it's probably more applicable algorithms and software and all this other sort of jazz. The phrase is this, I think it, it, we, you and I have discussed this, like, you know, the employees taking a shower, boom, this idea comes to them, right? Well, if that provisions in their employment contract, it's probably the most lucrative shower an employee had ever taken on behalf of the company. <laughs> and I'm going to be very happy about that, right? But, but you know, that's going to be there. If I'm the employee and I come up with that idea and it's suddenly like that million or billion dollar idea, I might want to be very careful about what I did and who I expressed that to and where I put that down would be my point. You mm -hmm. know, from the employee's perspective, I shouldn't be typing on that employer computer. I should not. I should be very clear <laughs> about what I'm doing or 
you know, have that idea separate and then be able to go out and take it somewhere else. I mean, so that's from my perspective as the employee, that's what I want to be very careful about. And to your point again, what did I sign? What did it say? Because some of these contracts will have that in there and some won't. That's right. But there are, again, intellectual property doctrines, even apart from those common law ones or statutory ones that may give you a lot of rights. And I agree that yeah. it's probably a little bit more weighted, but if I'm, I'm going to tell an employee, be very careful about that. And if you all of a sudden come up with a great idea, you need to be talking to somebody before you go putting it in places or talking about it with others. <laughs> right. I guess if it's not in writing, it may not have happened sort of thing. That's right? my favorite expression. So it's like you have this amazing shower and it's, the conditioner is <laughs> just terrific today, right? And boom, you get this idea. Right. Like maybe you don't go fire off an email to the guy that sits in the cube yourself. next to you and, and, and kind of think through, you know, how this go to your employment contract, if there is one and see if there's a provision there that talks about who yeah. owns this idea. You can most certainly, that's probably the, the best way for the employee to handle it. And then, because theoretically, the argument might be, eh, I didn't really come up with it while I was employed. I left and, and then I kind of like really developed it or sourced. And, but the employer's going to be like, wait a minute. Yeah. This sounds very much like what I hired you to do, sir. And where did you come up with this idea? Because I believe it belongs to me now. And depending upon how valuable that new idea is you came up with in the shower. It might be worth fighting about. It's, yeah, you're, you may be up against it. You may have an issue. And, and then from the employee side, like I'm a company and presumably I'm operating very well and I have the cash flow to probably go after you a little bit, right? Because cost-benefit analysis, this idea is brilliant and it's going to make a lot of money. So I have, I have more of a cash flow, whereas the employee is typically in a more difficult situation. But if you do have the, the new Google... I'm sure you can find some folks that are going to say, we've got your back on this. Yep. Well, we've certainly discussed some pretty heavy topics here today. So let's go ahead and end this on a fun note. With the weekend coming up, can you give me one movie that our listeners, our, our viewers might watch that could give them some advice or some principles on what we've discussed today? One of them from the employer side would be possibly Moneyball, right? I like that one. So anyway, so Moneyball, the premise of Moneyball is just the Oakland Athletics, right? And they had a general manager and they had some, they had like Jose Canseco and stuff like that. They're on the team. But ultimately, these guys just started playing extremely well and other ball clubs with more cash showed up and paid them more to leave. So they're trying to go through a rebuilding time and, and they just didn't really have the cash flow, I guess, to get another Jose Canseco on the, on the roster. I mean, so Brad Pitt's character runs into this guy, I think a some other club, I can't remember where, and it's, it's Jonah Hill. And Jonah's essentially this guy's position is, well, it's, it's numbers, right? It's not so much about, yes, obviously it's talent, but we're looking more for on-base percentages. So they go through this entire process on how they analyze people's walks and how many times they strike out. And they go and they essentially develop an algorithm, a formula that says, here's how we're going to start finding new ballplayers, right? Essentially on our budget that increases the likelihood of success within the game. So instead of going and getting those guys that, that have like high slugger percentage or whatever it's called, they're finding the dudes that can get on base two out of three times. For cheaper. Not, right? For cheaper. So they go through and they create this entire algorithm and then that's their thing. It essentially becomes very successful and it, and it works and there's some science to it. And, and that's something that the, you know, the athletics had developed internally. So that's, that's kind of their property, that, that algorithm, that formula that they created, this new type of way to build a team. And that just kind of became their model. Inevitably, I think the Boston Red Sox picked up on it and started doing the same thing, and they also did it very well. But that's, that would be kind of from the employer side, something you really want to protect. I mean, it's very unique, right? Everybody's just trying to buy the one, two, or three guys that can just crack some home runs. 
Whereas, you know, those guys are very valuable at the time and they still remain that way. But, you know, somebody had to develop something new to say, like, we've got to be able to compete. What can we do? Well, we developed this really interesting math equation and find guys that can that fill the roster and, and get us some more wins. And I think they went to the World Series that year, maybe. I don't remember. I, I know they had, there was one point, I think they had the 22, there was a 20 or 21 game streak or something like that, but they went some, they yeah. set the record for the number of games. But again, to your point, I remember seeing this, but they're, they're spending so much mm-hmm. less than like your Yankees or your Red Sox or LA Dodgers yeah. who have the funds. And they're able to use this business algorithm like you talked about. Yeah. To, and they even converted it into their ability to, to place players, right? Like, I, I think that they even used it as a means to determine what type of pitchers they wanted and or to convert players to other areas of the field. Like, they might always have been a shortstop, but we're going to jam somebody on first base. Something that was, it was really interesting. And, That's a good one. But that, that'd be one example, I think, from the so, employer side. So the one from, I don't know if it's strictly employee side, but the one I would think about is the social network. And this is, it's a couple of years old, but it's about the founding of Facebook by Mark Zuckerberg. And I think the really interesting thing is kind of what we were just talking about with respect to who owns what when we start doing things. The way the movie is set up is it's told through the lens of litigation that's occurring between Facebook and Zuckerberg. And then some other folks who had originally hired him to do something similar to Facebook but the movie kind of portrays it as he sees the value of that and he maybe goes and does something different with it. That's how it's presented in the movie. But so it's kind of interesting about who maybe owns that original thought, that original process, and then how that ends up playing out. And just from the point of view of kind of the value of having that, being able to take that and then ramp it up and, you know, potentially some of the trade secret litigation oh, yeah. that ends up resulting from that. I think it's a really good movie that illustrates that. So that, was, that would be one that I would recommend. Another fun one, though, that we just did a blog on this, right? I didn't, I think you, you wrote it, or at least we published it somehow, about Kanye West. He actually sued to enforce a non-disclosure agreement. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was against an intern, not even, a, not even an employee, right? Yep. So, like, Maybe you should tell a story. I think, I don't know a lot about Kanye. So like he owns a shoe company. <laughs> Kanye and I are like this. Well, so you can I, explain I can this better this. than me then, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and that is a blog that, that we had posted recently. But if I'm remembering correctly, Kanye had sued the intern because it was a non-disclosure agreement. And I think what had happened is the intern had posted some new shoes that Kanye had come up, or his company had come up with. But hadn't released to the public but yet. they hadn't yeah, released they hadn't to the public okay but so i and you know I, I briefly read the lawsuit it didn't go into too much detail but the really interesting thing that we were talking about was what you said at the beginning which was it's not necessarily just the product it can be the way it's marketed in other yep. words they may have been a huge splash that they were going to make they may have had celebrities introduce it or somebody's going to wear this or it's going to show up at the oscars or whatever and this person put it online and suddenly took a lot of that marketing power potentially away or really messed something up and so they may have tried to go in, pull that image off the internet, and, and it, but it could have really cost a lot of money, at least from Kanye's perspective, as far as how that, how that goes out and the image that's associated with it. If it's famous people wearing it, superstars wearing it, maybe I want to pay 200 bucks a shoe. On the other hand, if it doesn't have that, maybe it doesn't have the same value in the marketplace. But that really illustrates the use of these, these types of agreements to make sure that you're maximizing the value of your business and your, and your products or services coming out of that. And it's a really good example of what employers companies should be thinking about because yes. i mean he didn't he prevail it was like a five hundred thousand dollar non-disclosure agreement was it a liquidated damages provision but didn't he like it was yeah. okay so he i mean what i presume to be an intern so i'm thinking i don't know it much a college kid I, I don't know but 
whoever this person is, they got popped with a $500,000 judgment because of an NDA non-disclosure agreement violation on their part. Simply, and I think what they did was just they had a picture and posted to their Instagram account. Something. I think that's, that's what, what it was, yeah. but I, I don't know if they got into a judgment yet. I, I, oh, okay. I just read at the point that we did the blog. I just read about the complaint because the, the exact same reason. I was like, oh wow, they did the liquidated damages, which mm-hmm. means we yeah. agree on how much you owe me if you breach this, and that's right. something that could go in these things as well. Yeah. So, like from the employer side, like these are things to think about. This is you want to protect your company and the things that you've created or you're developing for a very good reason. So you want these terms in your contracts. From the employee side. You should really know what you're signing when you sign it because you could end up just as this intern is that might be up against a yeah, massive- probably just having a good time and look what I'm working on, right. buddies on my Facebook account. Yep. And then all of a sudden, yes, it, it really ends up yeah. Yeah, going down the other yeah. way. And if you see a liquidated damages provision in your contract, you should really, you know, from the employer side, that, that's probably a very specific area where you would include that. So liquidated damages being, if you breach this contract, you admit or you agree that there's going to be some damages to breaching this, but the, the actual amount of the damages are uncertain. So therefore, we're going to agree mutually that for every violation of this contract, it's worth $500,000. And you'll say, yep. And, if and I'm the employee, I want to say, uh-uh, we're right. taking that part out or I'm not signing this yeah. because I want you to prove you actually lost something. You know, right. Did Kanye lose something? How, did, how much did he? You know, I, I want you to prove that in court if it's me and I'm the intern rather yeah. than just being like, Oh, the bill for 500000 Sure, I'll just write a check for that. <laughs> it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, and if anyone wants to go read that particular blog about Kanye, it's on our website at yourncattorney.com. And I think that's about all the time we have here today. So thank you both for joining us. It's definitely been really educational and informative. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Protect What's Yours. For more information on our firm and our practice areas, visit us at yourncattorney.com and we'll have one of our experienced team members reach out to you and help guide you through your upcoming legal process. That's yourncattorney.com. The insights and views presented in Protect What's Yours are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready to protect what's yours, contact Marcelino and Tyson today.